Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another broadcast on the Soul of America Radio. Tonight, you're listening to Hope and Healing, a journey to wholeness with your host, J.R. Thicklin. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Blog Talk Radio, hosted and produced by the Soul of America Radio. Comments made on tonight's broadcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Blog Talk Radio, the Soul of America Radio, or its host. Hope and Healing takes you from a place of pain, abuse, violence, rejection, and abandonment to a place of hope, healing, and power. All aboard with your author, activist, advocate, and friend, man of purpose himself, and your host for the evening, Mr. J. R. Diglett. Tonight to Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness. This is your host, J.R. Thicklin, and I'm so very glad that you've joined us here on the Soul of America Radio Network. That's right. Every Monday night, you can find us here at 9 o'clock Eastern Time, 8 o'clock Central, 7 o'clock in the Mountain Time Zone, 6 o'clock in the Pacific, and wherever you may be around the globe, you have joined Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness. And we're so glad that you've joined us tonight. You have joined us on a night in which we are going to really uh, examine some real dynamics of domestic violence in light of the rash of violence that we've seen here over the last few months. And uh, we definitely have a very, very special guest host with us tonight. I'm going to introduce them in just one moment, but I want those of you that are listening for the very first time, you're listening either on www.soulofamericaradio.com or you're calling in by way of phone, Erico 323-784-9638. We're so glad that you've joined us here tonight. And if you're listening tonight, I want you to know that you can find us on Facebook as well, up under Domestic Violence, It Is Your Business. And then we have another page in addition to that is our antithesis page, what we're calling Destiny by Choice 2 Fellowship page. It is the page of the encouragement, inspiration, prayer, and praise. But I want you to know tonight that as you're tuning in tonight that we want to really get into some very important elements of this issue of domestic violence and so much to be uh, discussed on tonight, and we're so glad to have you to be a part of it on tonight. So as we're getting ready to go into our show, we want to invite you, if you have a question and or comment, just simply call area code 323-784-9638, hit number one on your keypad, that lets our producer know that you want to get on the airways, and we'll get you on the airways tonight. Well, as I said uh, tonight, there's been a rash of this uh, incidents of domestic violence that have happened throughout our country, all over in the different sectors, and they have called uh, for us to really be able to really look into the dynamics of what's going on throughout the country. And I have with me uh, tonight two of our very important, very important guests that are with us, our co-hosts, I call them. They're always uh, here with me, but I look at them as being on special assignment tonight because of the fact they have not only uh, made themselves available, but they are uh, truly a part of what is happening throughout 
our uh, journey in doing this. And I think uh, that I'm very grateful because of the fact of what we see and what we have in them, uh, not only the experience, but we also have inside of there uh, with them is the fact of the years of this work, the years of this work making a difference on so many different fronts. So I'm going to call our very special guest co-host in on tonight, and that is in the personage of the former deputy chief of uh, Prince George uh, County, Maryland, none other than Deputy Chief Michael Blow, as well as I'm going to call in on the line, none other than my friend, our colleague, the behavior scientist herself, Dr. Annette Douglas. I'm going to say good evening to the both of you. Welcome to Hope and Healing, the Journey to Wholeness. Good evening. Good, good evening. evening, all. Good evening. Well, I, I tell you, listen, the work is never done. I'm going to start off by saying that uh, it seems as if, and the, the title of the show is Domestic Gone Wild. Of course, domestic violence seems to have gone wild in lieu of so many things that have happened and that is happening throughout our country. And we're seeing things that are happening in a, in a way that is enough to bring any city or anybody into really a consciousness of almost fear. It's almost terrorism that is spilled out into the streets as a result of this. And there are so many different things that we could talk about and so many different angles that we can talk about tonight. And I know there are plenty of other callers that are out there. Matter of fact, we see some callers that are already uh, um uh, they've already hit uh, their number one key, and they want to get in to, uh, to ask questions, make comments. But I want to open tonight, and call us. We'll get right to you tonight. I want to open tonight uh, specifically with the case that just happened uh, on last week there uh, outside of Maryland. Uh, there in Maryland, outside of D.C. area there. And um, this case here, and I'm going to allow the two of you to kind of outline this case because, of fact, this case here was very interesting, and it was very reminiscent of a case that is uh, many years old, and yet it's still, uh, you know, it, it, it begins to strike fear in the hearts and minds of the people uh, outside of the uh, the greater D.C. area. And um, I think that there's a lot to be said about this particular case because of the dynamics that is there, and also because of the fact it looks like to me that perhaps the victim did follow protocol, that she did all the things that uh, we normally tell victims to do. And so how do we handle those things? And I'm going to allow uh, uh, Chief uh, Blow and you and Dr. Douglas to kind of g uh, give for the audience, uh, if you would, just a, a summarization of what happened in this particular case that has been all over the news for the past four or five days. Well, sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Pastor. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry that we're here again talking about another tragic incident. But in this particular case, um, uh, Mr. Eulalio uh, Tordill, he, he's also a Federal Protective Services uh, police officer. Um, last Thursday, he confronted his wife in the parking lot of a school in Beltsville, Maryland, where she had gone to uh, pick up their, their daughter. Um, ironically, uh, I, I know you're referring to another case, and we'll get into that, but you had some of the same elements here. Um, they had been having uh, prior domestic uh, issues. And as you indicated, she did seek a protective order and had received a protective order, uh, as, as you advise people to do on your show many times. Um, and he confronted her in the parking lot of the school and began arguing with her. Well, a bystander saw what was going on and uh, went to her aid 
and of course he shot the bystander who came to her aid, and then he shot his wife or his estranged wife as she sat uh, in the in their um, SUV. She unfortunately passed away, and the bystander is expected to live. And um, the next very next day, he decided to continue his his uh, wrath of terror, if you will, and he goes to the um, the Montgomery County area of Maryland to the uh, Westfield Mall, and and again he attempted to um, well not again but he attempted to carjack a woman. Uh, two men saw what was going on again. Two two bystanders they came to her aid. Uh, he shot both of them. Uh, one of the gentlemen that he shot died, and then the other one that was shot he is expected to survive, and he also uh, shot the uh, driver of the car. He then went down the street and uh, to the uh, Giant Foods in the Aspen Hill area of, um, of Silver Spring or the Bethesda area. He counted another woman in her car, and he shot and killed her in the same manner uh, as <clears throat> the news is reporting, either attempting to accost her vehicle or create some other uh, type of criminal act. And so this gentleman pretty much went on a three-day uh, killing spree. And certainly there are a lot of questions that have not been answered. I know uh, Dr. Douglas has been doing some, some digging into um, some other issues surrounding this gentleman. I, I don't want to steal her thunder. But uh, obviously this gentleman was, was very troubled. And, and one of the troubling things that he was also an active duty a police officer with the Federal Protective Service. Um, he, <clears throat> after receiving the ex parte order, uh, his department did follow the protocols according to the available information. Um, he was suspended. They took his service weapon and all those things, and it appears that he had numerous other weapons that he did not surrender, uh, which he used uh, to commit some of these uh, heinous acts. So, again, this was just a, a tragedy of, of tremendous magnitude and uh, certainly one that um, that will – take the community quite a while to to come to terms with in terms of how this occurred. You know, as you describe this, and I, I want Dr. Douglas to jump in here uh, in, in a moment, you know, the fear that happens so many times with victims of the domestic violence period is the fact, is the fear that things will get worse. It is the very reason why people stay in it so long, and in many cases the reason why people get out of it. Uh, they don't want to be killed and those things happen. In the case here where, uh, you know, definitely there was, uh, you know, already reported the domestic violence, I mean, uh, she did the restraining order, she did all the things she was supposed to do, and, and you know, and the next part of that was to surrender to service weapons and things, but, but is there any way of really knowing whether or not this person has surrendered every weapon, or do we trust in the just uh, that the person will be uh, will do what they're supposed to do in surrendering all their weapons? Well, clearly in this case, uh, this this gentleman had additional weapons, and and he did not surrender those. And and I know that'll be part of the investigation. The the investigators from both jurisdictions in Montgomery County and Prince George's, and along with the, I'm certain that his his agency will will conduct their own administrative investigation to find out uh, how this occurred so they can get to the bottom of that. But this clearly shows that when someone is determined to injure someone, 
they will do whatever it takes to accomplish that mission. And that's what occurred here. Now, I'm certain there are a host of issues that will come out as the investigation continues, but this gentleman was served. Uh, The agency removed his weapon, the the weapons that, that he had that they issued him. And still, this guy went to the school. Uh, after that, he wasn't satisfied there and continued the next day just, you know, on, on a wrath of terror. And, uh, again, you just can't emphasize enough that even though people will go through the process and do everything right, that still doesn't guarantee that the abuser or the suspect or whatever the label is, is going to totally comply with that directive. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to bring Dr. Douglas in because I know that you'll have some insight and some angles inside of this and what kind of might have led up to this, and, and, and definitely we want to get you on at this time. And for our listeners that are listening, uh, uh, I know there are a few of you that are waiting to get on with your uh, questions and or comments. We'll get you on in just a minute right after the break here. But I want to bring in Dr. Uh, 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 Douglas here, a uh, behavior scientist and one who has uh, definitely been uh, – on this field and addressing this work for a long time. And, and Dr. Douglas, uh, inside of, a, of just, you know, what you found out and what you've observed inside of this case, what is it that you could add and in, in, in far as some of the dynamics here? Well, thank you, um, Dayar. I just wanted to add that I look at the aspects. We know what the media says, which is not very much. Just the, the media tells us there was a shooting and what was involved. Uh, the investigative officers have more information uh, than sometimes what is on in the media. And then I've noticed that when we talk about um, the the topic of domestic violence gone wild, I, I address that it has not gone wild. I think what, to me, it has not gone wild. I think that what's happened is that it's being more exploited. And these are actions that have been taking place over the years that have not been exploited, that people were not uh, given attention to. And and the media is picking it up more now than they did at one time. Um, so the wildness of it all is that it's been brought to the public's attention. And then um, when I hear you say she did what she was supposed to do, and I'm wondering what that means. What does it mean that what she was supposed to do? The woman it didn't live. She didn't have uh, an, a life of non-abuse. Uh, so is it because the law says this is what you're supposed to do in filing a complaint and then you can live? You know, so there's a lot of questions behind that that neither one of us can really answer. But I pose the question because I'm sure there are uh, criminal justice uh, persons on this on this uh, line, these lines, that can really ponder and wonder what is it that is not happening that should be happening. As for uh, Mr. Tordell, he um, and his wife um, are from the same country, which is the Philippines, and she was previously previously married um, and the. The young lady, she had two daughters that she was picking up at the school, and they were from a previous marriage. And they 
this tutorial, um, I think, is Eulalio and and Gladys were married about ten years, and their um, the abuse began with them in the early portions of their marriage. She accepted it in the beginning from the investigators' report. She accepted it in the beginning, but that was a way of living in some not all cultures of the Philippines, but in some cultures of the Philippines, that is a way of living. And which was one of the reasons she was no longer with her first husband, her children's father. So he, of course, is now a trained in the professional category as a federal protective service officer. And I want to talk more about him being an officer in a moment. He knew exactly what he was doing. And she spited him by leaving, by having this estrangement. She did what the Filipino men are not to accept. And he, of course, felt at this point that he had lost a great portion of his manhood, public manhood, because she left. And she was living well. And she was well-favored at where she worked at her school. She was well-favored at her daughter's school. Uh, a number of students applauded her and thanked her for getting through their semesters of chemistry training. She was a chemistry teacher. And she was, so she was well right, well-known. Unfortunately, Mr. Tordell was having some issues at his job. Uh, he, uh, I'm not certain if it, was, if it was between his fellow officers or it was um, between he and a superior officer. But he was going through some changes there. So here we have a person who has a cultural background that calls for male dominance. And we have a person, the same person, is in a very powerful position. And now he's feeling some differences between his peer, his peers. And now he has this estranged wife, this whole relationship. His world is coming to an end, which led him to where he was. Um, the first kill in many cases is somewhat one that progresses. It's like I've heard the story that once you get a tattoo, you want another tattoo. And and so he, he, was, he didn't know where to go. He knew that he had to protect himself. He didn't have a place to run. Of course, when he was trying to get away and, and taking these cars, that was a part of his training. And he was taking these cars or attempting to take these cars and say, kill, shoot, make my way out of here. And that was his reaction in doing all of this. Now, killing her was because she refused to return. They've had conversations. And, yes, she had a, a, a warrant to be sure that he used to stay away from her. But she was determined she was not going back to that type of living. So he felt that. It was because of her that he was having differences and difficulty at work. And because of her that they put him on suspension because uh, she did take those matters into her hands because, as you know, and you're in that type of a position, in a safety-related position, and you're called before criminal justice, and you're known to have a domestic abuse, and there's laws against that in Maryland, in the District of Columbia where he worked. So he felt now he's a laughing matter, not only among his, his peers, but among 
his culture, people of his family. And he's saying that it's because of you that this is happening to me. What we can be thankful for is that the girls were not present. Because with that type of behavior, it would have been the girls' next. And he also, um, they discovered that he believed that he should commit a suicide. He had talked to some of his peers about there being what they call a suicide by cop. Um, there were a couple of law enforcement people who said, who quoted suicide by cop. He wanted to commit what was known as suicide by cop. So that was his next uh, ordeal. You'll probably learn in questioning, why did, if you were going to commit suicide, why were you trying to get away to do it? What, why were you taking people down as you went? If it was your intent to commit suicide, why didn't you do it there on the spot? So there's a lot of situations going on with this man. I just hope that he will not get off with the plea of having some sort of a temporary insanity because this was well thought out, especially with him having the type of weapons in his home. He, uh, for several months before she decided to, to have this estrangement, their children were also being abused. He, they were not physically abused, um, as we would say, in a uh, um, sexual relation or something, that they were forced to do military-style push-ups. Um, they were forced to do it. As much as the two young ladies who don't, we don't want it anymore, we can't do it, we're tired. He saw to it that they did. And if they had to be punished, he detained them in dark closets. He put them in dark closets for several hours. Sometimes he they missed school because they were being detained by him in a dark closet. And one of the times that he abused his wife, he hit her so hard that her glasses broke and, and caused bruises on her face, not just flew off and broke, but that's how hard he hit her. So a lot of the anger that was going on with him was taking out on his family, and he felt that he should not have suffered from it. Uh, I don't want to talk too long because there's even more that I wanted to say about the Federal Protective Service, Um, more I wanted to say about people who are uh, officers and what their trainings are, et cetera, but you may want to um, see at this point, I'm certain with – Chief Blow, we discussed before about officers in trouble. So even though this is a, a situation where it's domestic violence gone wild, we're looking at officers as well. Absolutely. You know, you're sharing a lot there. And what I want to do, because we have some callers that are holding on, uh, and they are holding on to ask questions and everything, but uh, we definitely want to get them on. Uh, here in just a second, but I want to take a break real quick, and uh, we're going to come back after the break, and we'll take some calls and and uh, definitely visit that part where we're talking about with officers. Listen to Hope and Healing, a journey of wholeness, and we'll be right back after this commercial break. <laughs>
via internet, you're probably seeing a series of advertisements. Please click on those advertisements as they help us to continue to bring you the best in Soulful Talk Radio. by choice to fellowship on Facebook is a spiritual, drama-free, judgment-free fellowship forum for like minds to share in encouragement through testimonies, scriptures, music, prayer, worship, and fellowship. It is our desire to be an oasis of hope in the midst of the deserts and wilderness of life's most challenging experiences. We welcome you for prayer requests as well as your testimonies as we collectively operate as thermostats changing life's experience through God's leading in His Word. Join us as we empower lives and shape destinies. That's Destiny by Choice 2 Fellowship on Facebook through a search you can find us. If you're listening via internet and you want to speak to the host, Please dial 323-784-9638 and press 1 to be connected to the host. This is the Soul of America Radio. I am Indy Harlem 2 and I am fighting the power on the Soul of America Radio. Worldwide Coast to Coast Talk Radio. This is the Soul of America Radio. You're listening to Soar. And now back to Hope and Healing, a journey to wholeness with your host, J.R. Thickland.
physical confrontations, at least it doesn't appear at this point, based on the available information. And, uh, and, and most importantly, it doesn't appear that she was uh, afraid or ashamed to seek uh, assistance. And I know I've heard in, in some of your previous shows where sometimes people are, are embarrassed to talk about when uh, issues surrounding uh, domestic instability in the home or, you know, well, the position that I have here in the church or at, or at my job, I don't want people to think that I don't have it all together and those types of Absolutely. things. Absolutely. That keep people from wanting to to come forward and get help not only for themselves but for their their partner their husband their their lover whatever the case may be in that particular situation so that's what I meant in that situation that she sought some type of resolution um, right to this issue and and unfortunately um, this clearly was uh, her husband's doing that created this created these deaths. Um, and, then, and then just very quickly, as we look at how most agencies respond to these things, uh, depending on how they are notified of a domestic issue, whether, they're, whether they are going there and the domestic um, uh, confrontation or disagreement is in progress and so forth, uh, normally they will, you know, they will obviously officer safety is, is the first thing that they consider, and we saw that by the incident that claimed the life of the the officer in Prince William County, Virginia, on her first day uh, by herself. Absolutely. Um, but normally they will, you know, try to separate everybody and just try to find out what's going on. Uh, they will try to intervene in, in some form or fashion. Uh, they will also try to see if there's some way they can come up with a resolution, even if it's a temporary resolution, something as simple as, well, i tell you what, would one of you be willing to leave the house for the evening, give you a chance to cool down, and, and perhaps – you guys can can talk about this at another time. And again, we're not talking about a situation where the officers are walking in and there's clearly been a confrontation and and there there's a physical thing going on. Um, and then of course they they have plenty of information, referral information to refer the family and and the two folks or three folks or whoever's involved to certain types of assistance, whether it's uh, you know. If it's an employee situation, whether it's employee assistance or whether there are other community resources or that agency has resources for helping with uh, domestic uh, situations. And then, of course, uh, they have the – and also referring – notifying each party. I didn't want to forget that. Notifying each party, again, if they're not visible injuries and so forth, and there are allegations that cannot be verified, uh, informing everyone, you know, there are options for ex partes or restraining orders, whatever that state refers to them as. And then the last thing, of course, they have available as, you know, if there are visible signs of injuries and those types of things, is making a full custody arrest. And so there's a long list of, of things that are available to officers uh, that will allow them to, to try to resolve that issue uh, and, and resolve it in a manner that no one either suffers any further harm or if or there will be no harm coming from that incident. And, um, and, and I know Dr. Douglas has sort of referred to officers, and officers, you know, just like everyone else, uh, they do have uh, domestic issues and other types of normal everyday strife, um, you know, but they're not exempt uh, from the law. And so in this situation, when uh, Officer Tordo, uh, when his agency suspended him and removed his firearm, uh, he was subject to the laws of the state of Maryland as any 
citizen would be. So in that case, just like Dr. Douglas indicated, now that he has lost the ability to carry a firearm, if this case had not taken such a tragic turn and it went through the court system and her husband had been found guilty, uh, he would not be eligible to carry a firearm, and subsequently he would have had difficulty maintaining his position uh, as, a, as a police officer. So I'm sure that kind of went through his mind, or it may have gone through his mind uh, as well. So no one is exempt uh, from these issues, nor should they be, uh, whether it's you know uh, a guy that works at the Sparrows Point Steel Plant or, or if it's the chief of police. Uh, recently in Anne Arundel County, I believe, they had a high-ranking member of the Sheriff's Department uh, that was arrested for domestic violence. And so no one is exempt. And so, but I just wanted to uh, leave that little bit of information with the audience. I felt that was very, very insightful and very helpful inside of that. I want to bring on, we have a, uh, once again, we have a guest that's been holding for a while. I'm going to bring him on now. I think he has some comments on, on both sides of the fence here. Uh, uh, area code 352 is the area code. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, you're on Hope and Healing, a journey to holiness. You're near. Very good. Good afternoon or evening for me. But anyways, uh, hello, everybody on the show. Okay, now, uh, what, what do you want to ask me? You want me to just talk about what's going on, or do you want me to tell you some other things? Uh, no, I thought you had a question or a comment. I do. I, I thought when I seen the program, it said domestic violence gone wild. Now, I yes. do understand it. I do understand that I probably misunderstood for a minute there because I thought it was talking about how it's going so rampant people are taking advantage of it. But nevertheless, there is a lot of people out there that need help and support. As the gentleman said, he's right. doesn't matter if you get a signature, a restraining order, and everything's signed and it's a done deal. Nothing's going to stop a bullet if somebody's that crazy. That I understand. Uh, on the other hand, you got other people out there that I taught when I seen the program. I said to myself, domestic violence gone wild. That's true. It has. The young lady probably said earlier that it hasn't, but it has. There's other people who are in different situations that suffer repercussions from like restraining orders, injunctions, lost their home, and it's their place and all that, simply for not doing anything so severe they get caught in the line to some idiot like this guy who did something really wrong that he shouldn't be doing, that he should be locked up, and they lose their home, their family, their place, and the whole nine yards. That's the aspect that I I wanted to bring up. For example, I can give you one story right now. I won't tell you who and say names, but there's an individual I know that tried to stop his wife from getting in the car because she was so drunk she couldn't walk, let alone drive. He got arrested for grabbing her purse strap. That was called assault and battery, domestic violence. He done six months in this class and six months in that class and all that, just trying to keep her from getting hurt because he should have never put his hand on her person, even though it was a purse strap, to keep her from going into a vehicle. That, to me, when the officer showed up and seen no signs of any injuries, he should have never arrested that fellow, but he got arrested, and it's happened to me personally. So I'm just saying sometimes domestic violence can be a tool for individuals out here to find a simply made no attorney divorce and get rid of somebody they don't want just by crying the blues and saying, oh, this happened to me or whatever. In this case, it's very different. But it's been 
taking advantage of. I think I think they need to take more steps into protecting somebody who may not be doing what they said. Like earlier in the show, I heard the young lady say the poor kids were abused and all that. Well, that's where DCF comes in, Child Protective Services. They should have seen these signs and warnings if they were even involved before this gentleman got any further from where he went. She, he, he hit a woman, left bruises, broke her glasses and all that. There's some other preventative measures that could have seen this going someplace it shouldn't be. When other people are being thrown out of their house, taken from their children, taken from their own home, can't even get in their own car, can't get their own business because they shared it with their wife or whatever, and it's not as bad as this particular case, but and they, they suffer the consequences of it. Not only do they do that, they also can never carry a firearm again if they're convicted of domestic violence. They lose a lot of privileges they don't know when they weren't beaten or hurting somebody in that manner. And when he told me earlier, or I should say when he said earlier in the show that uh, police are just as uh, treated the same way, he's right. I understand they're going to suffer the law of everything. But when a person gets in trouble with domestic violence, even if they didn't do nothing, even if the person doesn't have marks on them, even if they weren't abused in any manner whatsoever, when they're there to visualize it, the officers, they still got to take someone to jail because of liability. And they always take the man 99% of the time. They don't want that liability. Well, well, I definitely understand that there are mandatory arrest laws and those things do occur, and I definitely uh, thank you for your comment. I'd like to bring both uh, Dr. Douglas and uh, um Chief blow in on, on on those comments. I mean, undoubtedly, definitely, those things do occur where where people are arrested and people are arrested uh, oftentimes uh, inside of situations that are unclear. But uh, I I would say that in most cases that officers are trying to do the best they can to try to decipher who's the primary aggressor and 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 and, and making the right decisions. But I like to say that sometimes I think that. The um, law in different areas, different states, that they're not in sync um, in the actions. Like the gentleman just mentioned that there didn't appear to be any uh, domestic abuse because he grabbed her purse, not her body. He grabbed her purse in order to restrain her because she was in an um, intoxicated position. And he was trying to actually keep her from driving. Um, and it, there was no mention of him hitting her, touching her body, uh, but still, based on the decision of the court, of the criminal justice system in that particular area, he had to serve time, and I'm sure had to go for an evaluation. We mentioned on a show about two or three weeks ago about a woman and her children who were killed. Uh, the husband uh, committed suicide, but when she first went to the court there, for some a peace warrant or anything, for a straining order, the judge said, I don't see any bruises that can indicate that there was any type of violence. And she demonstrated to him that the bruises had healed by the time she made the court case, the court into the court system, but it was she had witnesses and she brought other evidence and they still dismissed it. And then here it comes later, this husband comes along and kills her. So I think it's also based on where they're located and how it's treated. So and many times, that's why I said, too, about the training for the officers 
the training for the criminal justice system. Um, there was another case where a judge was making a decision who felt that the abuser should not be penalized because there was not enough evidence. And then turns out later we discovered that the judge was an abuser himself. So, and, and like, um, like Chief Blow said, that there's no one, regardless of their profession, is um, no one that we should not hold accountable. But he was in the wrong position, this particular judge, to also be in that position himself. And he should have, he didn't, he would not recourse, recurse himself from the case because he felt he was right. And that's what happens with most abusers. Um, so when I say that gone wild, I'm saying that it has always been. And it's just that it's becoming more figurative and more pronounced. And now that we're aware of it, we're all, almost all of us are going wild with what do we do, what should we do to combat this? Because it's out in the open. These are things that were once in the closet. It's in the open. And I truly don't believe that there is enough being done. Um, and when I look at the people who are in authoritarian positions, I don't hear anything about continued educational training for them in these areas. Um, people who handle these cases on a day-to-day basis, yes, but people who are confronted with it as these officials, as the officers, what continuing educational training do they get? I've heard of it. I've been to a class on JR, as you know, and in Palm Beach, and they talked about that. They talked there were officers there who were leaders and are distributing and conducting training. But is it being done around the country? Is it being done around the world? Because these are people sometimes that come from other countries and bring this with them. But it's not happening. That's not happening as much as it should. I'm really sorry to hear of, of this with the caller from 352, but it's an example, a good example to say that some people go to jail and are, are penalized and some don't. There are some, there was one a case in Palm Beach who's done this with many women. It was, it was girlfriends. He did it so much so some women were beaten, bruised, cars, their, their personal cars, their personal possessions were damaged. And he, this guy was going rampant. Like we talk about the in Maryland, some of my sites were going rampant. This guy in Palm Beach was doing this. And the authorities didn't have enough in place or regulation to take him down. They had to get him on another crime in order to take him out of the position of abusing women. So we're left with a lot of tragic in our legal system. And that needs to be a reform, I think, is what I'm hearing more and more, that there has to be a reform inside of this because of the fact I think your point is very well taken. And thanks again, caller that called in from uh, Erico 352. You know, there has to be a reform inside of, uh, of the way that things are handled. There must be more consistency, and I think that is a major area of dealing with the inconsistency that contributes to a lot of these things are, are going on and, and being as impactful in the lives of so many people as they are. And I think that's something that uh, has to be looked at from a different perspective inside of that. Let me bring on one other caller. Uh, this is our dear friend out of Orlando, and I'm going to bring her on. Gail, uh, good evening. You're on Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness. Good evening, Rev. I'm glad to be on, and I thank um, those, uh, your guests tonight. 
um, for their input and the knowledge that they have um, and and the efforts that they have they have put through for on behalf of domestic violence. Um, knowledge is the new currency, and so I'm really kind of really much part of that. And and my organization and I are for it. And I want to bring up something um, that is from another point, and um, I know our law enforcement. Um, would know more about this, um, guess as much that he can maybe comment on it and and uh, please uh, our, our guests to, to comment also. Um, here in Orlando, you had heard, I'm sure you have, Reverend and some others, that in Lake Mary, in the Seminole County area, we had a family to be killed by the, uh, the husband um, and out on um, at Achilles, right? And the yeah, that's the case that we discussed two it. weeks ago, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, this is the the, the issue. Um, you know, in, in 1994, they passed the Violence Against Women's Act, and basically because um, law enforcement was leaving, you know, oh, don't worry, they'll be all right. Let them sleep it off, you know, and 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 all kinds of things. They made us as who are in in ministry. To become mandated reporters, you know, um, to be able to report things and not to just sweep it under the rug or don't worry, go back home, he'll be all right type of attitude. And then some of the, you know, the guests empathizing with in the in the judicial system with some things. We've had a couple of things happen um, in this area. Well, I know one is in this area. The other one, I can't remember where the judge is from, but the Violence Against Women's Act reauthorization in 2013 uh, also changed some of the language that was used, um, but it was still viable as to training for law enforcement in the judicial, judicial system. And um, Caricia Brown, the wife in this case, had misunderstood some things because there wasn't a 50-50 uh, sharing of the children. There was 100% in her care. So she was giving them back and forth when she didn't have to. Um, I don't know if it was out of fear or what, but but that was not the case. And then there was a couple of times she did not abide by the uh, instructions that were given. And I think at some point it became maybe somewhat discouraging. It's, you know, I can imagine that is such an overwhelming, and I've been in domestic violence situation, but not to that intense. But um, with that, there the, the officer who had took the, they fired him. Um, as you recall, because he was, and he said himself, he was lazy. He was too lazy to take it, you know. And we don't know to what extent that means, if you had to be working double shifts or what, or you just feel like it was no big deal. But once again, we have law enforcement um, training um, and, and walking away from situations where it could have saved her life. Twice he did that. The other situation was, yes. Um, twice um, it happened, and then the other situation is I can't remember what county, I don't remember, was Orange County or where here in Florida. The judge who berated the woman because she didn't show up for court, and she told the judge, shaking in her boots, and the judge, this female, this female judge, this woman, um, just began to, to berate her and tell her, well, you think you have anxiety now? And I've, I've had anxiety from being traumatized um, as a survivor of sexual abuse and domestic violence, and I know what anxiety is. And this woman, this is fresh on her, 
And so she is just terrified to even be there. She told she didn't want to see him. She was scared. I mean, she's going through the, the, the every mental health issue there is that goes along with trauma in these cases. And the judge just totally just disrespected her in, on all fronts. They have given her. She didn't want to do anything, but they had to make it her read. Uh, what do we call it, um, rehabilitation, the judge, uh, you know, give her something, you know, anger management. And I'm thinking to myself, whatever happened to the training that she should have gotten according to the Violence Against Women's Reauthorization or the, the 1994 to 2013 when it was reauthorized? Where's that training at in in the system? Because this woman was raped or, or beat up again standing in front of those who supposed to protect her. And I, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just appalled. Uh, my heart, and you know, if you know, uh, Rev is, is, is with this. This is my passion: domestic violence, sexual abuse, mental health, and it, it, how it's wrapped around all of these areas in my organization. And I am just, I want to know, at when are we going to hold law enforcement and the judicial system accountable? for what they do. And do we have an understanding when people walk out of the courtroom, is there someone, an advocate, uh, who sat down with her and went through this um, document from the judge um, that Sericia Brown got um, piece by piece so she'd understand you did not have to give him the children, you know? And um, and like you said, they'll find you because he put a GPS tracker under her car. So he knew how to find her, and, and, and that was all well said. But the point is she would have had some defenses if we would have stepped up in those two systems. I, I don't want to put the blame, but I can't help with saying we got to do better. Well, I think the point is well taken. And, and uh, Chief, I'm going to definitely invite you in on, on, on this part here. I, I think what we're hearing across the board is that the inconsistencies, the inconsistencies that occurs really puts a lot of people in danger of, as Gail was sharing about the case in which we actually covered about two weeks ago that happened there in Lake Mary, Florida, where the gentleman, uh, you know, hid in the trunk of the car and killed his wife and ended up, uh, you know, shooting, I mean, not shooting, but running over innocent bystanders and eventually uh, killing his children and himself. One of the things that did happen from that, as she just recalled, is that the officer ended up being fired because he failed to even deliver what he should have delivered prior to this happening, and he failed to do so, and as a result of it, it really put this woman in danger. But having said that, the inconsistencies that is happening across the board, uh, the case here that also happened in Florida, as she recalled there with the judge, uh, who basically verbally assaulted (laughs) right in the court this particular victim. And yet it's still these things happen, and it definitely becomes a deterrent to certain people when it comes to seeking help. How would you address that today? I, I was in the presence of a chief of uh, uh, police here, and he said something that was startling to me. And he talked about the fact of how little money that they had in their training budget. And I was, and I was just shocked. And it kind of uh, spoke to me in volumes that perhaps that is one of the reasons why there are gaps in some services or gaps in consistency because they they don't have the money or they're not taking the money and reallocating it to a lot of these very intense trainings. And because of the fact of uh, 
wouldn't wouldn't the public is left in the hands of of, of law enforcement or judicial system that may not be uh, really trained and up to date on some of the dynamics here, it really puts them at risk. And I and I we definitely want to hear your input in, in terms of these things. Wow. Well, you you asked me a very loaded question, so I'm going to try to address it all at the same time. Okay. But all of of the concerns uh, that were raised by you and the caller are are definitely legitimate concerns, so let me uh, take a stab at all of them, and I'll just work my way backwards. In terms of the training, and and the caller brought up the Violence Against Women Act, and that was actually one of the things in the act uh, when it was passed in in 94 was it was looking at – given funds for for training and also for having those mechanisms that would allow for consistent enforcement throughout the nation. And so, you know, when when you look at that act combined with the assorted domestic violence uh, laws that are on the books throughout the country, and in the majority of states they do have mandatory uh, arrest laws if there's signs of violence and, and other types of things. And I'll just say this. And before I move into the other thing, you know, the goal of those laws are, are certainly very noble, and, and theoretically they are perfect. But in reality, the system is not perfect. And so, you, you know, there, there have been many cases where we – well, not many, but there have been those cases that have been so egregious in terms of things that were not done. And, and, I, would, and I would venture to say that the majority of the – the cases that are coming forward either through law enforcement or through direct uh, intervention through uh, other counseling services and entities are being handled appropriately. But unfortunately, uh, just like when they talk about terrorism, uh, those cases have to be handled appropriately every single time. When we have cases like the case in Lake Mary, and when you have the case such as the case in Maryland, or we, we even recall the Beltway Sniper, uh, Mrs. Muhammad came on your show uh, a while back and talked about the domestic violence issues that she was experiencing uh, with her husband. And, of course, we know the terror he created in the D.C. area. It, it just shows that there remains a lot of, of work to be done. Uh, the case in, in Maryland several years ago where the young lady uh, left her job at the uh, at the cell phone store, and her husband came up and threw lighter fluid on her and doused it in flames. Uh, as you recall, the the judge in that case, when she sought a protective order, um, you know, didn't take it seriously, and 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 as a result, the young man uh, was not subjected to the wrath of the of the system, and we all know how that particular case ended up, and so. That is why there always has to be in every system, and, and, and we can't forget that the whole system of responding to domestic violence is not just a law enforcement entity. You have victim assistance uh, either in the prosecutor's offices and private and other governmental agencies. Of course, you have the police department. You have various advocacy groups. Uh, you have various caseworkers. You have prosecutors. You have a, 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 a large network of, of folks that are really focused on this issue. And that's why there always has to be constant evaluation and renewal of the various procedures. You know, whether it's, okay, 
how quickly will the victim assistance folk, um, you know, find another place or get some vouchers for that family that needs to get away from, you know, uh, mom who is abusing everyone in the household? Or how quickly should these cases of domestic abuse get to uh, get in front of a judge from the time that it has been uh, penciled by the police department and brought forth to the prosecutor? Uh, you, you know, there's just a lot of things that always need um, uh, renewal and, and evaluation to make sure that we are doing all that we can to provide assistance, uh, to provide referrals, and to provide prosecution and punishment and rehabilitation as appropriate. So it, it is a wide net that is cast in terms of those that are involved in, in uh, domestic violence. And, and one important thing, and I totally agree in terms of, of training, uh, as, a, as a deputy chief and, and as a former academy instructor, I, I, you can never get enough training in my eyes. And unfortunately, we all know that I don't know a jurisdiction in the country that has infinite resources. In fact, many jurisdictions are, you know, trying to juggle things and, and maintain uh, facilities and, and all kinds of other things so that they can respond to those emergency calls and close cases and, and interact with the community and those types of things. And unfortunately, and this is just not in Florida, it's throughout the country, as, as police chiefs get those mandates from either the mayor, the city manager, the county executive, the governor, whoever their boss is, and, and he or she is told, look, your budget, instead of having $20 this year, you are only going to have $11, and you do whatever you have to do to work within that $11 figure. And unfortunately, training is one of those things that, that takes the hit. And ironically, when you have these tragic incidents, whether it's officer misconduct or other things, that's the first question that people ask. Well, when was the last time the officer received training in domestic violence or Absolutely. and those types of things? So it's sort of a, a catch-22, and, and I know chiefs and sheriffs all over the country try to strike that balance, and that's why, again, it's so important to have those relationships with, with, uh, with churches and other government agencies who can bring in experts like yourself and Dr. Douglas who can provide that type of training to law enforcement officers or case managers or community advocates and those types of things so that we are constantly training mode. And we are also not only just training, um, Pastor Thickland, but we are constantly assessing, uh, looking at that empirical information, talking to those victim advocates, getting that informal information as well, so that as we start looking at, you know, the hard numbers, we had 20 of these and 30 of those and 50 of these, but we're hearing informally from the victims or even the abusers themselves these are the things that led me to be an abuser or these are the things I could have used that would have pushed me in another direction or the victim saying this is some of the things that I thought were deficient or these are the things I think you need to do more of uh, that will help not only me but it will help my family, my friends, because as we all know, when you have a victim of domestic abuse, it's not just the victim that's hurting or embarrassed or or, or angry or, or sad or suicidal. 
You know, it could be the daughter, it could be the father, it could be her best friend, his his army buddy. It impacts people in ways we can't imagine. You know, you shared so much there that it's so much and a great job of answering that very loaded question in terms of that. And I think that it, it leaves us to a real picture, too, of what the dynamics that go along with it. I, myself, I, I sit on the state of Florida uh, domestic violence fatality review team, and I know that as we review cases throughout the year and we, we really try to comb through them, you know, as a team with a fine-tooth comb, and, you know, and we do so and, and we try to then come up with recommendations that we could then forward on to the legislator, uh, legislators and uh, hopefully that we could then get some type of legislation to help, you know, um, to help us in addressing these dynamics here because of the fact many of these cases are very uh, horrific. Many of these cases here, uh, we sometimes we do see what we, we consider a um, – you know, basically a broken system or there's a loophole there or, or there, there may be cases where there's just not enough training. And what I think is so important, and you underlined it, that's why I believe that it's so important to get, you know, a, a multidisciplinary approach to this issue of domestic violence because of the fact a victim or a perpetrator, neither of them necessarily remain inside of a box when these things happen. Some, every facet of our society is impacted by the victimization of any sort. And therefore, I think that in, in terms of being able to support victims or hold uh, uh, perpetrators accountable, we have to do a better job in really raising, uh, in raising the awareness concerning this issue of domestic violence. I want to take a break real quick, and we'll come back and get to the final stretch of the show. You listen to Hope of Healing, A Journey to Wholeness, and we'll be right back. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. No one ever understands how hard it is to leave a domestic violence relationship unless they have been in one themselves. I don't tell people that I'm a survivor of two domestic violence relationships because they always look at me like I'm still a victim. I'm a victim of domestic violence. My family and friends don't know. They all think he's the perfect husband. I hate him to death. The hardest part about dating after my marriage is telling them I am a survivor of domestic violence. No one wants to deal with that. I finally got the guts to report the domestic violence from my ex-husband, who is the father of my children. I think it's made my anxiety worse. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. I suffer from PTSD because of the abuse I suffered over two years. I've lived with domestic violence my entire life. I can't even imagine what it would be like to have a regular family. I'm a domestic violence survivor. Dealt with it for seven long years. The memories, flashbacks, and nightmares haunt me every day, but I pray I will see the light again. I shared my story of being a victim of domestic violence with a friend. He said to me, How could someone stay with an abusive person? That's so stupid. I couldn't believe how insensitive he was. I'm a survivor of domestic violence and I still live in fear. I never thought I would be a victim of domestic violence. I've never imagined that I would have to get the police to rescue me from someone I love. How do I learn to live or love? I survived domestic violence. I am still alive. I am safe. I am strong. I am a survivor of domestic violence. It's been eight years but I now have my self-esteem and self-worth back, and I know I'm beautiful.
I still look over my shoulder every day, and the fear's still there. This woman was a victim of domestic abuse. She has chosen to conceal her identity because even though she is free, the fear is still there. For her, getting the courage to leave the comfortable life she knew and not return was the hardest part. I left 11 times. She tried therapy and counseling, but nothing stopped the abuse. I thought that, you know, if I loved him enough, that he would love me back. Ultimately, it was the concern for her children that made her leave. When I saw it affecting my children, I guess that was what really made my mind up. For this victim and some others, they're able to escape their dangerous relationship and find comfort and safety in shelters like the one behind me. Abuse Alternatives in Bristol provides an emergency shelter, therapy, court advocacy, and much more. They, you know, tried to just guide me in a direction without putting too much pressure. During the holidays, she was upset about making it a normal one for her children, but Abuse Alternatives took care of that as well. I had no idea how I was going to do Christmas for my kids, and they saw that Santa came. Since leaving her husband and coming to abuse alternatives, she has noticed an improvement in her children's attitudes. They smile more, they're open more, they're happy, and they feel safe. With the recent tragedy in Glade Spring, this victim knows that a similar fate could have been hers if she never got the courage to escape. I think if uh, I didn't have abuse alternatives to turn to, that you would be doing the story that you've done on her, on me. Kelsey Lair, 19 News, Bristol.
Welcome back to Hope and Healing, a journey to holiness. This is your host, J.R. Thicklin, and we're so very glad you join us here tonight on the Soul of America Radio Network. And just before those commercial breaks and advertisements there, uh, we were talking about the different uh, situation that it related to domestic violence. And, and I wanted to uh, uh, kind of uh, bring it uh, around to a, uh, a summarization of what we've talked about. You know, we start off talking about domestic violence going wild, and we recall a few cases there. And, and then I looked up and I saw last week that in in, in, in just the area of Jefferson County and the nearby counties there in Birmingham, Alabama, they have had 11 cases already of domestic violence homicides, 11 cases of them, and the majority of them being people of color already in this year. And, and, and most of these are young mothers. These are young mothers that are, that are killed, leaving children behind. And the dynamics are there. And, and, and in several cases, there were restraining order. The one common theme was, and, and, and uh, the majority of them, they were estranged. They were a strange uh, relationship here. And I wanted to bring that up for, for this very reason. What would you share with someone right now if they knew someone that was in an abusive relationship that's in a very toxic abusive relationship what is it that you would share with them well that question may be for you (laughs) (laughs) yes um that is a big question what would i share with them one of the first thoughts that i would um I guess I would not share anything about personal relation, uh, personal experiences. I would uh, first bring to them how they should feel about themselves, uh, how much they value themselves, and to remind people, which I often do, is that um, much of what happens to us or is what we allow to happen to us. And we have to learn to make the choice not to allow that to happen. And so that's that's one of the things I would share is that look at what is going on, where it came from. Uh, Don't make yourself the victim as another person would want you to be the victim and make the choice to not accept that type of behavior. That type of behavior is unacceptable, and you do everything you can to walk away from it. Absolutely. You know, it is an interesting thing uh, because the fact you kind of start with the fact that a person understanding their own value, their own worth, and that's important to do so. And, and yet it's still we have people that seem to be uh, feel like that their hands are tied when they're dealing with whether it's family members, coworkers, uh, you know, church members, whoever, that may be in an abusive relationship and they want to help. They want to try to be uh, some source of, uh, you know, uh, help to them. And yet it's still they find their hands seemingly tied because of even sometime in advice of, you know, the victim may decide that's not the best advice for them. Or the victim may think it's, may say, well, it's not that bad. I know I can handle it. And so that, yeah. that creates other dynamics. Um, one of the things that was very concerning and very concerning in the case that happened outside of uh, Maryland, the case that happened outside of Lake Mary, Florida, was that there was innocent bystanders and there was good Samaritans even that was killed inside of trying to aid in a bed. What type of message do we now give others, you know, who may find themselves trying to come to the aid of someone who may be in an abusive relationship? What is it that we say? What is it that we can say? Well, from a a law enforcement perspective, obviously, you, you always have to 
put out that word of caution in terms of intervening in, in any situation where there is violence or the, the threat of weapons and so forth. Because with the very second that you intervene, uh, there is that possibility that you could get cut or shot or beaten or and and so forth. And and that's not um, that might not necessarily sound like something uh, people want to hear, but that is the reality when you decide to intervene in something. Uh, oftentimes, agencies will advise people when you see something going on to be a good witness, or and and get good information to provide to the police and and so forth, because the person may not physically be able to intervene uh, for for a variety of reasons. But certainly, if if a person uh, chooses to intervene, uh, they have to keep in mind that now you will probably face that same rage or even more rage because now the person that is intent on, on harming that person is now in their mind possibly saying, how dare you try to stop me from doing what I set out to do, or this is none of your business. And, and I can tell you, um, just as a law enforcement person, uh, many years ago when I was a rookie officer responding to a domestic violence situation and the, <clears throat> the husband had beaten the wife with the handle of, of the phone. This was back in the day before cell phones were popular. He had beaten her with the receiver of the phone. There was blood everywhere, blood all over the phone, and uh, he was still in the process of assaulting her. And then, of course, as we come in, we jump right on him to apprehend him. And in that situation, even the the victim jumped on our backs and began hitting us. And so, you know, all these dynamics are are possible when you intervene in, in domestic violence uh, situations and so or any type of violence situation. So I would just say to folks, understand that that is a possibility, but certainly you have to go with your conscience and, and what you feel is the appropriate thing to do at that time. I mean, certainly these gentlemen may have prevented this guy from further harming other people. Or in the case of the school, he may have decided, well, you know, killing my wife wasn't enough. Let me see, can I go in the school and um, do some other harm? So there's no telling what level of violence these uh, uh, bystanders and good Samaritans uh, may have prevented, but certainly that is a, a question that you have to answer in your own mind. And you probably got about, oh, maybe a nanosecond to ask that question and answer it and decide, you know, what your position is going to be. Well, definitely that that's great advice because one of the things that does happen is, is this, is the fact that, you know, when you're looking at the fact of wanting to intervene, you do have to consider the fact of, you know, <laughs> will I also make this situation worse or better? You know, uh, there are times that when we talk about even calling 911 anonymously, that's great. You know, that's great piece of advice. But we have seen cases where people – intervening have actually, if you would, escalated the situation with the perpetrator in terms of the fact of now they're more determined than ever to do what they're going to do. And I think that becomes one of those situations where where it does become uh, it does become one that is a cautious one. You know, there are many campaigns out there. One of the campaigns talks about being a upstander, not a bystander, and yet it's still, I think that for many people, they don't know what to do. They would and, like and, to intervene, but they don't know what to do. 
And that's correct. And, 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 and Pastor Thicklin, one of the things you have to remember, even law enforcement officers, as they approach certain situations, um, they use a degree of caution and tactics and approaches and cover and concealment and all those different types of, of things as they approach situations, you know, whether they're, they're using, they're communicating or they are, they're using lighting and, and various types of non-lethal weaponry or less lethal weaponry. They're just a, a host of, of tactics that, that prof, trained professionals use. So you can just imagine as, as a citizen, I am a, you know, I'm a, I work at the bakery and I see something going on. Um, I'm just going on gut and, and, and what, what feels right in terms of making this go away. And so, like you said, it's, it's just it's an instant decision. Most law enforcement professionals are going to recommend that you be a good witness and, and that type of stuff. And certainly, and, and I have to throw a, a, a caveat in there, but certainly if there's someone that is clearly facing danger and they're just, this is just really bad, um, again, you have to make that decision and you have to decide, um, I'm going to take a stand here, or I'm going to yell, or try to distract this person, or I'm going to try to do something uh, to to assist this person who clearly needs some assistance. And I think that wow. is so important. In terms of go, go right ahead, Dr. Douglas. No, I was just saying that that is so very. You just hit it on the head. It's it's so very important, and and a lot of people don't know that what what Chief Blow is bringing forward. And, and this radio show tonight is information that folks are not quite aware of, and and more of this needs to spread around. Not just the fact that there wasn't a current, but what we can do about it. And I heard the lady speak from Orlando who talked about she reemphasized training. And I've noticed that you know putting the word out there. Well, here's a a sheet of paper that you should read and. It's a multiple choice uh, assessment and and ten questions. If you can answer all those questions, you don't need any more training. But we're talking about intensive, extensive situational training with rules and regulations and policies that are to be applied and how to apply them for yourself, which is what the three of us are offering. Uh, and and I hope that listeners will see that we're speaking from the heart as well as um, as Pastor T said, from our basic educational background and our work experience. So we're a team that's ready, that is all, we are already packed and ready to go. And if you see a need for us to come in where you are, to your church, to your school, to your um, business institutions, uh, wherever, the community center, um, have material, have knowledge, we'll travel. And that's something that I'm hoping that the listeners will convey to you, Pastor T, through the network, through Destiny by Choice. Um, and, and I've heard people come on the show and say, oh, I want you to come to South Carolina. Oh, we, we need you up in Maryland. But make it happen, uh, not, not just talk. Because while we're talking, it's, there are people who are victims. Well, I heard Blow mention uh, about the, the younger people, the, the, the in there, and you know I'm big on intergenerational domestic violence because it's a, it's, it's a learned behavior. It's not just the crazy, biological crazy. It's a learned behavior. And some folks don't know any different, and they don't understand. They're afraid to ask questions. 
Um, they believe that this is the way to live. This is a way of living. And it's coming more and more now with different cultures. It is not the way for this Western society to live. And we will not have it. So there are many people out there like us, but we're here to help. Absolutely. And, and I think, go right ahead, Chief. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I was just going to say, uh, Dr. Douglas made a good point in terms of, uh, particularly around the training and just the need to make sure that it's continuous and contemporaneous. You know, if you look at one of the things that, that recently happened in, in terms of looking at, at violence, and, and she meant, and when she said this, it, it spurned the thought in my head. Uh, look at how the lawmakers had to adjust to to uh, bullying on the on online and on the internet and twittering and all the other social media things that are going on. You know, just ten years ago, if you had sent a message or something uh, via computer, that may not have yielded a law enforcement response that is as detailed as they are today. And so even with technology that has forced um, law enforcement and prosecutors and advocacy groups to look at their policies and procedures and so forth to respond to just how quickly uh, domestic violence and, and all those types of things can be perpetrated, you know, in an electronic form. And so those things, too, create challenges. And and lastly, I just wanted to say, um, Dr. Douglas was talking about the training, particularly the training you all have been doing uh, around domestic violence, which, you know, I, I hear it, it, it's amazing. Um, there, for those of your listeners who are going to be in the Baltimore, Washington, Virginia area on Thursday, June the 2nd, just this type of training is, is going to be occurring at the Anne Arundel Community College uh, around crime, violence, and mental illness. And one of the breakout sessions is entitled Playing with Fire, Domestic Violence Prevention, Intervention, and, uh, and uh, Prosecution, and Prevention, rather. And so, you know, that's going to be a great time to get good information to take back to your communities. There'll be law enforcement officials there, community advocates, teachers, uh, and all kinds of folks who have a vested interest in making sure that we're doing all we can to to take this particular portion of, of criminal mischief into the negative numbers. You know, that that is great information, and we do say to all of our listeners that are listening even right now that what an opportunity, you know, uh, to be able to uh, – to contact us inside of uh, the information that you need and, and being able to bring this type of training. And we, we definitely like to think that we're contemporary enough uh, to be able to uh, address this from multi, uh, multidisciplinary type of angles. And I think that is what ne- is needed uh, today. It, it needs to be practical. It needs to be pliable. And it definitely needs to be something that, uh, that, uh, that will definitely, if you would, move uh, our systems forward inside of dealing with such a perplexed issue. And I want to kind of, uh, as we, we're reaching the last few minutes of the show, I, I wanted to say this, that we're living in a day and time where there's absolutely a, a culture that doesn't do much negotiating, that does not do much talking. Things are easily handled by violence, by guns, by 
many things. Uh, we see a rash here, even locally in our area here, where we see gun violence happening, domestic violence happening. We're seeing uh, homicides happening every week. There is not a lot of negotiation that is happening. People, uh, people immediately are uh, solving temporary issues with a permanent, so, with a permanent uh, solution. And that permanent solution meaning the fact that uh, it ends up in fatality. And we have to go beyond that. And there's so much that has to be done in the near future. So what we want to say is this, for those of you that are listening even now, reach out to us here, and I'm going to ask each of you uh, to give some contact information, uh, whether it's uh, contact information, email, phone number, or even a website address in which you can be used. And uh, we'll do that, and we'll wrap up. Go ahead, Dr. Douglas. I'm sorry. Um, my information is Dr. Annette Douglas, behavioral scientist. I uh, come with a large background working in private and public industry, uh, as well as uh, working within our church institutions. I, my contact information is consultant services at msn.com. Consultant Services is plural at msn.com. And I look forward to hearing from any of those who would like additional information. I also have some CDs available that you may be able to use if you are going about as a person who would like to combat this domestic violence. I have some training material that I will send to you. I can You can send me your email and now they have streaming where I can download it to you, or if you prefer me to mail it to you, I'll do that as well. I just need the postage, which I believe with the media postage, I can send you maybe five or six discs at $2 in mailing. Absolutely. Thanks so very much. Uh, Chief Blow, go right ahead. Yes, sir. And, and, of course, I can be reached at mblow at mbrexassociates.com. And certainly if any of your, your audience members uh, want to email me with questions or if they need any information, uh, please please do that. I, I certainly would welcome uh, any comments or, or information or questions, and I will certainly respond uh, right away to, to any uh, requests that I receive. And, again, uh, the, the conference, again, is on Thursday, June 2nd at the Anne Arundel Community College, and it begins at, at 8 p.m., and, again, it's entitled Crime, Violence, and Mental Illness Conference. And, again, one of the, the big breakout sessions is a session on playing with fire, domestic violence, prevention, intervention, and, and prosecution. And this is – and everyone is welcome. This is for law enforcement, uh, community members, uh, what, whatever your position is in the community or, or your job, we certainly welcome you to the conference and, and look forward to seeing you there. And, and again, uh, as I say all the time, I'm hoping that this will be one of the last times we have to have a conversation at length about a domestic violence incident of, of any type. Uh, I know that is certainly seems like pie in the sky, but certainly that should be our, our common desire is to remove this as a matter of concern. Absolutely, absolutely. And last but not least, definitely, if you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at uh, 
Jay Thicklin at destinybychoice.org, or you can reach us at manofpurpose2000 at gmail.com. And once again, you know, understand that this does not change until we are agents of change to make it happen. For those of you that may be listening here in the greater uh, state of Florida there, uh, on uh, on this week here we'll be in Jacksonville, Florida, there for the Florida Council on Against Sexual Violence at the Whisper to Roar Conference. We'll be presenting there on uh, the 11th of uh, May, and we look forward to speaking to many of you as we're addressing the issue of domestic violence, uh, uh, faith, sexual violence, and faith, and uh, faith communities working together to end uh, end sexual violence. And with that being said, our time is gone. We've had some tremendous input tonight, a tremendous guest, and as always, at the very best co-hosts in the world, our great team that comes together and lends so much to this conversation and giving us knowledge and wisdom. And I want to say thank you once again to uh, Chief Blow as well as to Dr. Annette Douglas. And, hey, we'll do it again on another level. I'm quite sure that there are many out there that are listening and uh, that they will be served by the information and knowledge that we have. So I greatly appreciate it. And until next time, we're going to say be blessed know that there's no excuse for the violence. And let's go forth and let's make a difference. Good night. Good night. Good night.